Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today's episode of JOSPT Insights is a collaboration between the International Federation of Orthopaedic Manipulative Physical Therapists, who many in our community will know as IFOMT, World Physiotherapy, formerly WCPT, and JOSPT. Together we're bringing you coverage of important issues in global musculoskeletal healthcare. Today, Associate Professor Paolo Sanzo from Lakehead University in Canada and Vice President of IFOMT asks the questions of Laura Finucan. Laura is a consultant musculoskeletal physiotherapist in the National Health Service in the UK. She's a researcher, an educator, she's the president of IFOMT and the lead author on the International Framework for Screening for Serious Spine Pathology. So we're talking red flags, how the way we think about, assess and manage red flags in practice has evolved and how you can add the rigorous and comprehensive international framework to your clinical practice tomorrow. Don't forget you can find the International Red Flags Framework in the July 2020 issue of JOSPT. Head to jospt.org to find it. The framework's full of practical, case-based examples of managing red flags in clinical practice. Join over 50,000 people who've downloaded the framework since it was published last year. I'm going to hand over the reins now to Paolo and Laura to jump into serious pathology of the spine. It's my pleasure to welcome Laura. Thanks, Paolo. Why is it important for clinicians to be able to recognize serious pathologies and maybe even tell us what is serious pathology? You know, what we, when we talk about serious pathology, what we're talking about are condition, conditions such as cord syndrome or malignancy, fracture and cord particularly related to, to the spine. We, we know that serious pathology in, in, in the musculoskeletal world probably affects the spine mostly. Uh, it, it doesn't mean you can't have serious pathology in, in other aspects of, of your body, but essentially the biggest number are found in the, in the spine. So, so when we talk about serious pathology, those are the kind of conditions we're talking about. And the reason we, it's important to identify early is because if we miss or delay diagnosis, then patients can have very devastating consequences as, as a result of that. And I think probably a really good example of that would be something like cord equina syndrome. So what we know is that cord equina syndrome can affect your bladder and bowel uh, as a consequence of having back pain affecting the nerve roots. And essentially, if that's not caught in time or operated in a timely manner, patients can be left with devastating consequences that, that cannot be altered, essentially. So they can end up having to have a catheter for their bladder. They, they may have to self-evacuate their bowels. And, and function is is very you know is completely devastated, and and this happens in in very young people. So we know that if we can pick these patients up early and identify early, then there's a good chance we'll, we'll they'll have a good outcome, and you know prognosis is better, treatment you know they'll tolerate treatment better, and you know essentially have a better quality of life. So that's why it's so important that we that we catch these serious pathologies as early as possible. What was the driver? for you and your research team to develop the framework? If you'd asked us back in 2016, I don't think that any of us would have uh, had any idea 
about what this framework would look like. It was it was kind of you know we knew we we would develop it because you know we were asked to do that on the back of of iFont essentially. But the reason what we did know at that time was there was lots of anxiety within the system in in musculoskeletal physiotherapists essentially. So we knew that clinicians were really worried about missing serious pathology. Quite understandably, there was quite a lot of worry about one missing it, but two also you know the consequences of litigation if they were to miss those serious pathologies. And and the other thing we knew was that lots of physiotherapists around the world are taking on sort of more jobs that that really are our medical colleagues used to do. So, you know, things that used to be held by GP, our GP um, colleagues are essentially being done by physiotherapists. So with that comes a level of risk. We also know that, or, or an increased level of risk, should I say. We also know that Certainly, direct access is becoming much more common across the globe. Uh, and again, with that, uh, there was some anxiety about the fact that they didn't have a GP who would screen those those red flags out before they came to to see the clinician. And I, and I think I just will add to that because whilst that's you know happening, I think there was some complacency again around you know well if the GP has seen this patient, then it's okay. I don't need to worry about red flags because they've already screened them. And and I would say, you know, my response to that would be, well, I think you need to be careful because, yes, at that moment in time, the GP has screened that individual. But we know with lots of these serious pathologies that they evolve over time. So they might see the GP, they're fine at that point. But, you know, as they go through a, a course of treatment, of course, that could change. And and so, you know, something around making sure that people or individuals actually evaluate those red flags as they go through that course of treatment. So, so we so we knew that there was that anxiety. We also, what we're really aware of is that, you know, red flags have been used traditionally to identify serious pathology. But actually, what you were faced with was the list of items that you or I had to interpret. There was no um, no guidance, no standardisation, no, and you know, my interpretation is going to be very different to, to perhaps yours. So, so that meant that you know there was wasn't any clear clear guidance on on how to use them. And different guidelines use them in different ways. So, so this confusion around how should we actually be using that? So, so we knew that there was something around trying to make sure that you know we can make this a much more standardised approach. And and finally, that really there was something around the fact that we use red flags to identify serious pathology, but we needed really to justify their use by trying to find some evidence. We tried to look at the evidence uh, and sort of establish some diagnostic accuracy around those red flags. So in other words, if the red flag's present, then you know there was a good you would you would expect there to be or there would be an increased um probability that that serious pathology would exist. But we've not been able to do that at all, except in a handful of those red flags. So so again the evidence wasn't very good, which meant that there was a call from lots of people saying, well, why are you using red flags? You know, they're, they're, they're not helpful. They're not, you know, it's, it's they're not particularly good. And, and we felt, well, that's not very helpful for clinicians on the ground who actually have to be able to identify these, these patients with serious pathology. So you can't throw them out. You know, they, they do have some value, but we wanted to put a bit of context around that to, to see what that would look like. It's so important for us to create a safe environment, not only for the clinician, but more importantly for the for the patient that is experiencing some of these different signs and symptoms that you're describing. Can you maybe describe in a bit of detail what the methodology was that was used to develop this framework? There's very little evidence, if you like, about using red flags. So, so that that was quite 
problematic. And it's not really surprising in this area. You know, you, you it's very difficult to do prospective studies on, on this subject because of the, the low numbers that you're going to see. So, so we knew that that was problematic, but, but there were a number of systematic reviews that we could draw on. So, so the method we used was um, a consensus method, really. Uh, and, and it was a specific method that was enabled us to, to create this framework. And it came in five phases, essentially. And the first phase was around looking at those systematic reviews. And in the, in the case of uh, malignancy and fracture, there were some up-to-date systematic reviews we could use. So, so we looked at the data of those, but we had to do systematic reviews for corticoina syndrome and spinal infection. So that took a bit of time for us to unravel. But once we'd, once we'd done those systematic reviews, what we did was we took out the information that fell out of those systematic reviews in terms of risk factors, symptoms and signs of, of those uh, specific pathologies. And then what we did is we, we presented those and we asked clinical experts around the world in those specific areas to tell us what we should be using within our framework too. So we did a consensus from expert opinion to draw those out. Once we got those back, we then put that into uh, sort of like a table and then we put some context around it. So for example, what we had was, uh, if you look at uh, past history cancer, was was a top one for malignancy as it should be. And then what we did was we put some context around what that really meant. So we would we described, these are the cancers you need to be concerned about. So in particular, things like the top five would be breast, prostate, lung, kidney, and thyroid. So you'd be concerned if someone had a past history cancer and, and we put that into some context and then think about the questions that you might need to ask that patient around that particular red flag. And then really look at, are you concerned about it or not? So, you know, what would make you concerned and what would make you think, well, that's okay. I, I'm okay to hold that essentially. So, so we did that for all of the, all of the different pathologies. And then what we had was a, a decision model essentially, which, which was around what's your level of concern? What, what is it that's concerning you about this individual? So, so you look at those items that, that came out from your patient and, and then you kind of look at the context and then put that together and decide what's that level of concern. So this, the second step was, okay, so if I am concerned, what am I going to do about it? So there are, there are like four areas. So the first one would be not, no concern at all. So this patient's coming and they're not presenting with anything that you're worried about. So you just carry on with your treatment as normal. And the second stage would be, Hmm, there's a couple of things in there that I might be a little bit concerned about, but it's not enough to tip me over into doing anything significant about it. So, and again, if you go back to the example of past history cancer, that alone wouldn't be enough for me to go, yeah, I need to get this person sorted and, and, and screened. What I would need is, is something more than that, but it would be enough for me to just have in my mind, well, that's increased my uh, awareness or my index of suspicion, but I'm going to treat them and I'm going to just evaluate and monitor them over that period of time to see what happens. And so there's that sort of balancing act to be done. Whereas that patient who, who presents with a past history cancer, they're starting to tell you that they're getting progressively worsening symptoms, they're, they're, night, you know, they're disturbed at night. All of those things are adding up into, into a situation where I'm thinking, okay, I need, to, I need to investigate this patient further. So, And then we start to, to think about do I want to do this? Is this an emergency? So in other words, do they have to be seen today, right this moment, or can I wait a few days? So that emergency versus an urgent uh, sort of onward referral, if you like. So, you know, in the case of corticoina syndrome, that would be an emergency because we know, you know, you have to deal with those patients within 24 hours really to make, to make a difference. Whereas someone who 
you might suspect of having a malignancy, then, you know, we can afford to wait a few days. That's fine. That, you know, it, we, we, when we talk about urgency, we talk about five days probably. Um, it depends on your, your own pathways. And then really it's about that. It is about that pathway. So what is it that I need to do in order to get this patient on the right pathway to be to be evaluated and sorted out essentially and that will that will vary around the world in my world uh, you know i can investigate for mris um, so that allows me to to deal with with that part of that journey whereas in other areas you know that may not be possible so therefore it's knowing you know what the next step would be to actually get this patient to the right place in in a really timely manner can you tell us a little bit about the framework and how to implement this into practice for clinicians, I think it's what's really important is is the context. You know, it, it it's about looking at the information that you've got. The key the key part of this the framework for me is that this isn't it's not we know it's not black and white. You know, trying to identify serious pathology is not easy. It's really challenging. You know, what we've not done is present anyone with a recipe or an algorithm because it doesn't work like that. You know, we know that these things can change dramatically over time. And depending on, on the pathology itself, you know, will depend on what that looks like. So it's it's really you know making sure that that you have an understanding about how that pathology might play out over time. I think that's really important. One of the key things is around clinical reasoning. You know, we know that that's that's hugely important. It's not a recipe. It, it's very much being able to flex and 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 really think in an agile way to actually try and. Think, think about your clinical reasoning in a way that flows as the patient journey flows, essentially. So if you think about historically though, that list of red flags and, and you ask about night pain, for example, what's your, what's your night pain like? Well, it's fine. Okay. Or yeah, I'm disturbed. Well, if it's disturbed, what does that mean? So it's asking the question behind the question. So I need to ask and explore those questions in, in, in a deeper way in order to get the right answer that I want or, or I'm looking for. You know, I would be asking the patient, well, so you're disturbed. What do you mean by that? What, what happens? You know, is it, are you woken by, by the pain or, or are, you, are you waking up because you're turning over? If, it, if it's because you're turning over, can you get comfortable? Can you go back to sleep? Uh, no, I can't. So, so what happens? What do you have to do with that? Well, I have to, you know, I have to get up and I have to walk the floors or, I, you know, I just, you know, I can't lie flat because it's too uncomfortable. I have to lie, you have to sit in a chair. Okay, so... Can, can you get sleep in the chair? Well, eventually. So that for me is building up that picture around my concern about, about that night pain. So it, it's, it's those questions that need further questioning. Well, I really like your response. I think a lot of times when people are reading consensus statements or research, they're, they're really looking for a very simplified answer. And, and you've kind of eloquently indicated that, you know, it's really not going to tell you how to think or what to think. It's really just part of that journey and integrating your clinical reasoning process there. Now, oftentimes we're told or we read that serious pathology is quite rare. What are your thoughts on this? You know, this is a really interesting aspect of it, I think. You know, if you look at, so historically, we've been told serious pathology makes up about 1% of all um, musculoskeletal conditions that present to primary care. Well, yeah, and, and we're told that that's rare. Well, one in a hundred. I, I would suggest that that isn't rare in itself. But equally, I think the challenge is we don't actually know whether that's that is true or not. Uh, I think you know it's based on on one particular study. 
we don't really have that data. And I think that's something we really need to look at. We, what we do know is that it will depend on where you are, wh- where you sit within that patient's journey. So for example, a GP is likely to see less cases of serious pathology than perhaps a spinal orthopedic surgeon. And we probably as, as therapists sit, possibly might sit in the middle of that journey. So we're more likely to see more than a GP, but less than an orthopedic surgeon. So, so it will depend on where you sit in that, in that journey. And for a good example is that I sit in a, what we call an interface service. So I, my job is I see patients who've basically had a course of therapy that they haven't benefited from. So I'm likely to see more serious pathology because their condition maybe hasn't improved. And the reason it hasn't improved is because, or their worst thing is because they've got something going on. So we think within, anecdotally within my service, we, we're probably seeing two to three percent. You know, that's one in 50 if we take two percent, which, you know, is not insignificant. So you know, I think it's more than we than we think. And I think we need to expect that it's probably going to increase over time. So when, when you talk about serious pathology, we know that it's it's associated with age. Uh, so the older you get, you know, there's a higher chance of, of getting serious pathology. It doesn't mean that you can't have serious pathology at any age. We know that. But, you know, there is this uh, step towards you, the older you get, you, you, you might run into difficulty. So, and we also know that we've got an aging population. So, so that's equally challenging. By 2050, one in five people will, will be over the age of 60. We know that, you know, lots of people are having uh, comorbidities or, or will end up with morbidities uh, over their lifetime. We know that 20% of patients with chronic musculoskeletal conditions are likely to end up with some kind of comorbidity. And that could be cardiovascular disease, it could be cancer, it could be diabetes. And what we know about some of those things is that they are in fact risk factors for things like spinal infection. So so it kind of you can see that there's there's a bit of a running thread through that really. But I think we don't really understand exactly the number, but I, I would expect this possibly to increase over time. Yeah, it sounds like one thing can kind of lead into the next almost starting a cascade of events that creates more of a prominence in terms of the numbers as well for for clinicians to kind of be aware of. So what are your three top tips for doing a good assessment without unduly worrying the patient and yourself in the process? Perhaps some of the noise that has been created by the framework is 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 that very question around, you know, how, how do we how do we not alarm the patient or, you know, if I write a letter that's directed to the patient, how do I not alarm them? that I'm writing something in there that, that might, uh, you know, pertain to them having something serious going on. And, and so my answer to that is there should be no surprises. If you're writing a letter to a patient uh, and you're describing that, that conversation should already have been had. I don't think that we should be frightened of alarming patients. I'm not sure alarming is the right word, but I, I think it's our role to have that conversation with the patient around concerns that we might have. And it might surprise clinicians that they may well have a sense that something strange is going on or, or they're worried about something. And I think it's very much about making sure that we'd have that collaboration with the patient to, to voice that concern and allow them to, to voice that concern. Because often when you ask the patients, do you have any concerns? Then sometimes they do come out with, with yes, I'm worried. I'm worried that I might have cancer. And then it's about, you know, how do you deal with that? You know, and some of that might be about reassurance because there's no evidence of that, or there might be yeah, well, that is a possibility. 
So let's explore some of that. Let's look at some of those things. And, and if we have got some concerns, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to manage that. So, so I think, you know, we have to be mindful of, of making sure that we collaborate with patients. But that didn't answer your question, did it? Top tips. It is about communication, actually, you know, which that just demonstrates that really in, in terms of it's really important to, to communicate with, with your patients. Use your eyes, you, your ideas. What do they think is going on? What, you know, what are their concerns and what are their expectations of seeing you? Because that will give you a very clear idea of what's going on. I think, as I said earlier, I think questioning is critical with these patients. It's, it's really making sure you frame those questions. I can tell you some funny stories about watching some students, you're trying to evaluate a cord equina syndrome and, and not, ask, not framing the questions, you know, and instead of asking, you know, I'm going to ask you some really important questions about your bladder and bowel. This is the reason I'm doing this because, you know, there's this condition that you need to be aware of and, and watching a student just say, just sort of going, well, have you had any accidents? And of course the patient turned around and said, well, when I was 10, I fell out of a tree or, you know, I was run over by a, a bike when I was tiny, you know, so it's actually that it's so important to get that that context right and those questioning right. And I suppose the third thing would be around making sure you safety net patients. You know, we t- we talk about this in the framework. We've just written a paper about safety netting, which is a term really about making sure that patients really understand the context. And 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 cordyquina is really a really good example of that. So you might have a patient who presents with back pain and leg pain. They've got no cordyquina signs but they might run into difficulty with cordyquina. So it's about warning them what to look out for without alarming them, just saying it's a possibility, it's rare, but these are the things that you need to look out for. Making sure they understand what to do if they do develop those symptoms and where to seek out, you know, to seek help. So for me, those are the, th- th- the three things, communication, questioning, and safety netting. Very applicable to day-to-day practice. We'll finish off with one last question, and it kind of relates to the current environment around the world. How does the framework work when you're providing care via telehealth? You know, are there any changes that you would recommend from an in-person assessment? The short answer is no. And and the reason why is because in the early stages of serious pathology, lots of this stuff comes out in the subjective examination. So the majority of your information is going to come from the subjective. So that doesn't change. In terms of an objective examination, you know, you might get neurological changes, but that often is in the late stages of a disease. So actually the majority of your information is going to be picked up from the subjective examination. So that won't change uh, in terms of telehealth. You know, that, that's what you've got to be good at. You've got to be able to, to get that information within that, in that situation. So providing you've got good communication skills and your subjective examinations thorough. Well, Laura, thank you very much for highlighting such an important topic and especially for you and your team putting together such a comprehensive document. Thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT. 
and Facebook. We're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.